in to Priced Out, the podcast. I'm Andrew Morgan. I'm going to be your host today along with Cornelius Swart. How are you doing today, Cornelius? I'm good, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing all right. So you went out and you got us a good interview for the podcast. It's not, you know, they won't just be looking at us today. You actually went out and got a credible guest for the show. So uh, fill us in. Yeah, we have an actual important guest. Um, <laughs> the other day I spoke with State Representative Alyssa Kenny Geyer. And she is the chair of the House Human Services and Housing Committee. So she's been a long-term activist for affordable housing and the funding of affordable housing and landlord-tenant law reform. So how'd you get connected with her? Well, she's featured in our documentary, Priced Out, 15 Years of Gentrification in Portland, Oregon. And as you may know, yesterday, Monday, we went into a new legislative session. It's a short session that will be going on all month. And they'll be tackling some important housing issues. So we got a chance to talk to her. This is the first part of two parts to this interview. The first part is just going to be mostly about what's coming before the legislature and her um, her interesting comments in defense of Rod Monroe, who's kind of a controversial uh, lawmaker in himself. And the second part of the um, of the interview we will will play after the legislative session, which will be a little bit more of the politics of housing as it relates to the state legislature. Will we be able to give them some of the answers to the question of what can we do to be active? Will we be able to hear some of those things? Yeah, there'll be ways that you can help move the needle on legislation and how things are funded here in Oregon as far as affordable housing laws go. And you'll also just learn a little bit of the inside baseball on landlords in the legislature, how we got in this situation with such weak landlord-tenant laws, and what are some of the ideas that are out there to try to reform the system? All right, so I'm excited about it. So let's just sit back, relax, and listen to you and... uh, Alyssa Kenny Geyer. It's a phone interview. All right, so here we go. Hi, folks. We're back here, and now we're going to speak with Representative Alyssa Kenny Geyer, who represents North and Northeast and Southeast Portland in the state legislature. And she's the chair of the House Human Services and Housing Committee. Thanks for coming on. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Great to have you. You're, you're in Priced Out. Uh, we had a, two great interviews with you that uh, you know, were cut down to just a few seconds. But uh, we feel that they were, they were important moments uh, in the film. I was you- honored to be a part of that film. Yeah, fantastic film, and I was honored to be a small part of it. Now, one thing we've, we've talked about sort of in the in the discussions after Priced Out was Oregon's unique urban growth boundary system, and that, you know, two years ago, there was kind of an exception to urban growth boundaries in the case of building affordable housing, meaning developers, cities could build, nonprofits could build outside of the, the current restrictive boundaries if they were going to create more affordable housing for the region. Is that something that that Julie had supported? Julie supported that, uh, co-sponsored by Republicans, squeaked by with 31 votes, and I was a 31st vote. I did support that. I know Mm -hmm. there were a lot of concerns of people who are diehard supporters of our urban growth boundary, and I consider myself a huge supporter of the urban growth boundary. I think it's partly what's made Oregon unique, that we say we don't want the kind of sprawl. We don't want to lose our agricultural farmland. Once we've lost that, we've lost it forever. And we want to make sure that we protect that economy, protect our open spaces for everyone to enjoy and for our economy to thrive and to be in our city. So we don't have that stall and and carbon emissions and people having to spend more and more time traveling in from where they may live. So I'm a strong supporter of the framework. I also feel like 
we need to be able to innovate and experiment a little, and that was a very limited pilot program that allowed two different counties of different sizes to be able to expand outside their urban growth boundary, but contiguous with their urban growth boundary by 50 acres if they were going to do a certain amount of it for affordable housing. Not all affordable housing. We don't want to just throw all affordable housing farther away from services, but we also don't want a bunch of McMansions out there. We wanted a, you know, a mixed income community, which is how we envision is the strongest for society anyway. But it also, in order to qualify for that, a county had to show how it's the city that it would be next to is doing everything it can to really increase density inside the city, and yet they still need the space. And so we really were trying to, you know, not destroy the urban growth boundary, but say to reinforce the principles of you really are doing everything you can to increase density inside. In other words, yeah, allowing yeah. ADU. I, th- I think that Things that like was that. a good example of, you know, being nonpartisan and coming together, working in the spirit of compromise, yeah. you know, two sides agreeing that, that there is a problem. So many times we see that the two yep. sides cannot even agree on what problems are. And you right. know, saying there are, we agree on the problem, we differ on the solution, but let's compromise right. and everyone get a little something. And I think that's the way most people want things to operate when they look at the big picture. But then when you get down to each individual issue, people kind of hold up in their camps. I think it was a unique move, and I, I, I definitely applaud that, just the spirit of trying to work with compromise. And Oregon has yearly legislative sessions, but every other session is a short 30, 35-day session, and we're going to start one of those on Monday. What do housing advocates want to get done? Yeah, you're asking me at a good time. I'm, I've been preparing frantically for this session that starts on Monday. And uh, over the last few years, we've been both trying to bring more resources to the table for affordable housing and policies like land use policies and tenant protection policies and inclusionary zoning and others. So, of course, we know that we need resources to, to help solve this problem, and we know we need policies. It's not one or the other. In this particular session, we have our two highest, uh, my two highest priority bills. The first one, which is really, really critical, is to increase our document recording fee, and that's the fee that when you have a property transfer, the county clerks have to record the title and currently, $20 of that goes to affordable housing, and we want to increase that to 75 mm-hmm. California just went from zero document recording fee up to 75 on top of having a real estate transfer tax where a percentage of any home sale goes to affordable housing. Uh, Washington State has a $58 doc recording fee in addition, again, to a real estate transfer tax of thousands of dollars on every home sale. We can't do the real estate transfer tax, so we don't have that. And our document recording fee for affordable housing is only $20. And so we very much need this revenue source to support affordable housing. And that would, that would generate an additional 41 or so million dollars a year for, for three programs. Exactly. Three programs, emergency rent assistance, fund for affordable housing, and first-time homebuyer programs. Is this the third one? Yeah, so the document recording fee, 10% goes to the emergency housing for distressed renters and to, mm-hmm. and to homeless shelters. 14% goes to home ownership in, in the way of uh, home ownership grants for down payment, financial literacy, mm-hmm. and even home repairs. And because 25% of this fee needs to go to veterans, it's allocated for veterans, a lot of that is used for home repairs, for, for instance, remodeling when they come back and all of a sudden have disabilities. 
So that's really, really important. And then 76% goes to supply. And so in addition to the increase in the document reporting fee, the other half of the bill is to create a new home buyer savings account. It's a little bit like the college savings account. Mm-hmm. So it's um, a subtraction off of income tax up to $5,000 million, uh, $5, a year per individual for up to $50,000. Or for a joint couple, they can do up to $10,000 a year off of their income tax-free, um, again, up to a total of $50,000 that can be used for um, purchasing a home, first-time home. Now, you said there were two priorities that are on the top of your list. What's the yeah. other? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. The other committee bill is House Joint Resolution, so that's HJR 2001, and that would be a referral to the tw- uh, November 2018 ballot to amend the Constitution to make our um, bonding for affordable housing at the local government level, the municipal level, more flexible. So uh, you may remember that Portland passed a very significant housing bond, first in its history, of $258 million in 2016. We were you know, really heavily supported by Portlanders who are literally walking over people on the streets and in front of businesses and recognize that this is a huge problem. Not just homelessness, but you know, distressed renters who are spending too much of their rent, um, too much of their income on rent. So Portlanders heartily supported it, but because of our um, restrictions in the Constitution on bonding, it, it really ties our hands in a lot of ways, and the funds cannot be used as flexibly as ideal. And the Metro Regional Government is planning on putting an affordable housing bond on the November 2018 ballot as well. And so they also want as much flexibility as possible in being able to use these bonds in a way that most meet the needs and, you know, don't tie the hands of people who are trying to develop these projects. Now, the two big hot-button issues that that come up most when people talk about the legislature is um, the state's ban on rent control and the issue of Mm no-cause evictions that are allowed in, in the state of Oregon. Can you tell us a little bit about where the direction of, of those laws are, are going and what was done in the past in the last legislative session? Yeah, our, our tenant protections are among the weakest on the West Coast. And when you think about 38% of Oregonians are tenants, so nearly 40%. So with 4 million people here, you're, you're approaching, you know, over 1.6 million people are tenants. So in 2016, we were able to get a, um, some modest protections through. It used to be that you had to have a 30-day notice for a rent increase, and we expanded that to 90 days. And we also said that in the first year, the first 12 months on a month-to-month lease, you couldn't increase the rent at all because what was happening in this really hot market is people would, you know, see what their pay stub was and then go to Craigslist and they'd figure out what they could afford, and they would move in at great cost to themselves to tie up their money into a deposit in first month, first and last month and relocation expenses, and then three months later, they get a rent increase. And then maybe six months later, they get another rent increase. Mm -hmm. We were sometimes seeing two or three rent increases in a year. So we were able to get a few things through. We did try to do a 90-day notice for no-cause eviction as well. Mm -hmm. This was a short session, so we couldn't do something more comprehensive. Uh, That no-cause 90-day did not pass, but the other two restrictions on rent increase did pass, and I think that brought a little bit of relief. In 2017, we had House Bill 2004, which was a more comprehensive approach. It um, abolished uh, no-cause evictions, you know, as a compromise as it went through the House. It went through my committee and passed. It passed the 
House and then it died in the Senate. And so the short session is really, you know, not an ideal time to take on a large policy like that particular one. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it would get in the way of trying to pass the document recording fee where we need a three-fifths majority. So it's off the table for this session, but I know there's a lot of interest in bringing it back. Do you feel that there's pressure from 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 advocates and from the base uh, to to bring this up, even if it seems like too short a session to get it passed? There are certainly some people that feel that way, but I think most advocates realize that with the same legislators around the table right now, as we had last session, there's mm-hmm. not a good likelihood of passing it in a short session. We have the same mm-hmm. people voting on it get it through in five and a half months. Uh, And so I think the advocates are really focusing more on the kind of local strategies that you mentioned, for instance, Portland saying, you know, you need to pay a a relocation fee if you're going to use no-cause eviction, which is still allowed by the state, or if you're going to increase the rent over 10%, then you need to pay a certain amount to compensate people when they've just had the one taken out from under them. So I think there's a lot of effort on trying to look at more local options for now. And then um, I think we'll, we'll reassess for 2019 mm-hmm. and, and continue to work on all those different pieces that it's going to take to stabilize people in their housing. Sort of two more uh, questions. You um, We were talking about rent control, and you had mentioned a term rent stabilization. Can you explain what the difference in the two is, or is it, you know? Yeah, some people think of this as just semantics, but, you know, the first generation rent control was often just freezing um, rent. And so when people hear rent control, they think it means you're going to completely control, you're going to dictate what the price can be. And that is not at all what the second generation of these rent stabilization policies are, which is you want to stabilize it for people who are currently renters, but there you want to allow for the rent to, you know, the rent, the, the landlord has to be able to make a decent profit. They just can't make it speculative, but there has to be a process. The city has to articulate in their ordinance a process by which you can establish a fair rate of return, and it has to be an appeals process. And in addition to that, most rent stabilization projects, and I assume that, that our, our cities would do the same thing and learn from best practices, allow the rent to go up in between. When renters have left and, and, the, and there's a vacancy, landlords can reset the price. So over time, these rent stabilization proce- uh, processes don't actually overall tend to keep rents down they, you know, because they can go up over time if you look at mm-hmm. what the average rental cost is. They do go up over time. Mm -hmm. But the reason that rent stabilization is so important is because it's an anti-displacement policy. It gives people who are in a rental the assurance that as long as they are upholding their end of the bargain, they're paying, they're abiding by the rules, that they can have the stability of a home. And that is what is so critical. At the point that the person leaves, the landlord can raise the rent however much they want. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of second generation. Mm-hmm. It is why it's so important that rent stabilization alone is not the answer for affordable mm-hmm. housing. It's, it is a, a very critical step in anti-displacement, but it actually doesn't help people who are outside the rental market, who are uh, maybe coming home from college and looking for a place. You know, it, it doesn't help those people, and that is why we absolutely have to get at the supply issue. And that's a great way of explaining it. It's sort of slows the growth in rent um, over time and resets uh, once the, the unit is vacated. 
and and just again, so people know just very quickly, kind of what we see here um, at the you know at, at reporting on the issue. What I see is that uh, you know with the ability to raise rents by as much as you want as a landlord, and the ability to throw someone out without cause, it has created a pinch point or a you get people between a rock and a hard place where they have to absorb an unsustainable rent increase because they don't have enough time to search for another option. They don't have time to make choices in the marketplace that are make more sense for them economically. So they wind up having to accept a very high rent increase. And then that, that, that is a long-term detriment, but it's short-term. It's the only option that will work because they don't have enough money to move uh, and enough time to find a more affordable place. Is yeah, it- and I think that's the main difference. It's not rent control. We're not telling you what you can charge for the rent in your apartment or your rental. We're just saying... Rent stabilization means that you're 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 not creating an environment where tenants are total their their life is totally unstable because at any point their rent can spot beyond what they can pay and they've got no recourse whatsoever in that. Luckily, they now have 90 days because of the law we passed in 2016, mm-hmm. but it's, that's not a lot of comfort when there's very little vacancy. And that is why the term rent stabilization is stabilize the rent uh, for the people that are that are currently renting. Sort of uh, the la- the last question is, you know, we saw that there's a lot of, uh, you know, in the film priced out, we saw that there was a, a large number of landlords in in the in the state legislature in both houses in 2015. 30% in the House, 40% in the Senate. Do you think that affects the dynamics of what gets passed and what doesn't when it comes to housing policy? You know, there are people who are landlords who are very supportive of this policy. And there are those that are not, so I don't want to make too big of a generalization. I do feel very strongly that uh, we need representation from people from all walks of life, from all races, from all economic backgrounds, to make really good policy in the legislature, either so that they can make policy from their own lived experience. And if they don't have that lived experience, they need to be very approachable by, and, and really listen to people who have a different lived experience. So the fact that um, in the legislature during that year, every single person, or every single of our 90 legislators was a homeowner, and many of them were landlords, means that we really have to, it's incumbent on us to really listen to tenants, because not one of the people that are making these decisions are a tenant and are facing that possibility of a no-cause eviction or a rent increase. And that is that is why I feel so strongly that it's incumbent on us to to really listen to our tenants. And it, it is where, you know, I parted ways with Senator Rod Monroe. I didn't feel that he was listening to the tenants adequately enough. And so I don't know whether his decisions um, to not support tenant protections came from the fact that he's a large landlord or whether he just wasn't hearing the stories from tenants enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't really impart intention on the part of my colleagues when they're casting a vote. It's important for people to know that in Oregon, even if you have a conflict of interest, you still have to vote. You declare the conflict of interest and then you go right ahead and yep. vote anyway. And that's that's, that's just right. the way the system yeah. is designed. And I will say Diego Hernandez now is a tenant. He um, had a house and is no, no longer owns that house. And so he, he, I believe, is our only legislator that is a tenant um, and he's a strong supporter of tenant rights. And so you said there that um, legislators, lawmakers need to listen to the tenant community, um, tenant constituents, 
And that, that's really the last, the last exit question is just what should people do to support these efforts or get involved or just get more informed? What, what, should, what should the voters do? Well, thank you for that question because, you know, I've talked a lot about how I think it's really important for, for my colleagues and myself to take the time to really listen to people who have a different lived experience than our own. If we're going to make good policy decisions, I would encourage anyone who is, you know, is very concerned about these to get involved in the political process and um, to hold us accountable, but to try to do it in as civil a way as possible, because we need to be able to, to really talk out um, all of these ideas. Barney Frank, who's a senator, former senator from Massachusetts, uh, once said the, the two most powerful lobbies in the country are the NRA and the AARP, and neither one of them do any protesting. Ne- neither one of them march down the street. He said the AARP doesn't go down for a hobble down Main Street. They, they use more traditional channels to get what they want, uh, which is to, to contact their, their lawmakers, writing yeah. and donating. And do, do you feel it's effective when, when your constituents reach out to you and say, well, this is just what I want? We have to recognize that the people in political positions are people too and to not invade their personal space. I think for me that crosses a line. I don't think that... I think calling them out and holding them accountable and even even protesting in the streets is acceptable. But for me, crossing over into people's personal lives or attacking them personally, you know, and it, I'll be really specific. In the case of Rod Monroe, calling out the fact that um, he's voting against the interests of uh, many of his own constituents and pointing out that if you're supportive of early childhood, it's not just about early childhood programs. It's making sure that families of young children have stable housing, making sure that um, those connections are really clear. And if there are politicians who don't see a connection between those issues, then they're probably not keeping up with the times or reading the articles or listening to their constituents. So I'm all for holding people accountable, but I would keep it on, on the issues and use public spaces, town halls, other, other avenues like that, and not someone's personal home or church. I know there are going to be many people out there who listen to this and, and disagree, but um, that is just my personal opinion. Very good. And is there anything else we should know? No, I just want to reiterate, please support House Bill 4007. Please reach out to uh, any colleague, any peers or family or friends that um, that people may have, that Oregonians may have around the state. We um, This is our one chance to really raise the document recording fee to an amount that can really make a difference in this housing crisis. So hope for people's support on that. I hope we pass our um, House Joint Resolution 2001 to refer to the ballot for November 18, mm-hmm. this constitutional amendment to make uh, bonding for affordable housing more flexible, and then I hope people will vote for it in November 2018. Very good. So so what you're saying is, is people, please contact your legislature, voice your support, and if you know someone in another district, reach out to them and, and encourage them to also call their legislature or legislator and voice their support. Support the document support and fee increase to $75. Yep. All right. Thank you very much, Representative. Thank you, Cornelius. And we're back. Hey, man, that was a really good interview. Like, I really appreciate you going out there and, and finding someone that they can bring some credibility to this podcast. <laughs> Just messing with you. I, I know you're a wealth of knowledge. But but seriously, what do we have to look forward to uh, with the second part? Because I'm really anticipating hearing the second part of this interview. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about the politics um, behind the legislature and lawmakers and the Democrats, including Rod Monroe, who's a controversial figure. But also, I think we'll 
hopefully be able to talk to folks like Julie Parrish, people on the other side of the aisle, who have their own ideas about how to solve the affordable housing problem in the state. So hopefully we'll have both of those. Well, what do we have to look forward to as far as priced out uh, the podcast coming up next? Hopefully next week we will have a, um, a discussion about gentrification in Nashville. Coming up in a few weeks, there's going to be a screening of our first documentary, Northeast Passage, at Tennessee State University. So we're using the opportunity to talk to folks in Nashville about what's going on in their city. All right. So we look forward to that. And of course, we'll see you guys next week on our podcast. Until then, keep the discussion of gentrification going.